0: Last week, I spoke with a new friend after church, and this gentleman works in Washington, D.C., pretty high up in politics, and uh, he's been there for quite some time. And he's only been at our church for the last couple months, and he said to me, he said, you know, one of the things that I really love and appreciate about this church is he says, you guys are apolitical. And he said, "I, I spend my days debating, you know, stuff, and I just wanna come in and focus on God and worship Jesus. And he specifically said, you know, last week I really appreciated it that after the Roe decision that nobody, you know, there wasn't anything like to do, anything said or done about it. He says, it just felt so refreshing. I'd been dealing with that all week. And, um, and I get that. I, I get, I mean, I get that sentiment. I get the desire to want to avoid politics. And so I just want to be clear right out the gates that today my interest is not in talking about politics, I have no interest in telling you which of the current political parties you ought to be a part of or which politicians you should vote for. Uh, This is a friendly space for Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians. And for those of you out there who the last like eight elections you voted for Ralph Nader, (laughs) you know who you are. (laughs) Listen, the issue of abortion first and foremost, is not a political issue. It is an ethical and it's a moral issue. And actually, long before our current 21st century iterations of political parties, of left and right, of blue and red, and all of the nonsense we have in American politics, long before actually America was ever a nation, God's church has been considering this issue. All the way back into the second century, we have writings from among church fathers who address the issue of abortion. And so I just want to make the point that this is not a political issue. And I get, can I just, I'm just going to make an aside comment here. As a pastor, I get a little bit frustrated that it's almost like whenever you raise an issue of, that's worthy of consideration and reflection, ethical issues, issues like racial justice or care for the poor, that all of a sudden, the only way we know how to think about this is in the binaries of left and right, of blue and red. And listen, there are other spaces out of which you can reflect on these issues. And the place we're reflecting on it out of is out of a deep commitment to Jesus and to his kingdom. And so this is not a political issue. It's an ethical issue. And if, if, there's, if there's one place you can go where you hope you might find some guidance and sage wisdom to face and or grapple with some of the ethical issues we face in our day, don't you think that Jesus and the apostolic witness is a good place to go? And we need that kind of witness and guidance. And so we're going to be turning to the teaching of John and what he says about love to help us think through this issue of abortion. Now, let me just give a little caveat right as I begin. I wanna acknowledge that this is a big and sprawling and complicated issue and there are so many different layers. There are the legal and the constitutional and the socioeconomic and the biological and the medical dimensions. And of course, there are other ethical reproductive issues we could bring into this conversation about stem cell research or in vitro fertilization or birth control. And look, most of these topics fall well outside of my area of expertise. And so what I want to do today is more limited. What I want to do is focus on this one question. How might the Christian ethic of love inform our moral and ethical discourse about abortion. And I want to be even more specific than that. How does the Christian ethic of love as John unpacks it in 1st John chapter 3? How might the insight we have here, how might it inform and shape our discourse, our ethical reasoning when it comes to the issue of abortion? That's the question we want to talk about. And so here's how we're going to go about this. We're going to spend some time just getting into the text of 1 John chapter 3, and there's going to be a point in time, about 15 minutes into the sermon, where you're going to be like, when are you going to get to the abortion thing? You're you're wrong if you're thinking that. Because you want to get into the Bible first before we get there? Come on. Thank you, wisdom. Wisdom's like, that's good. If wisdom said it's good, then it's good. <laughs> She's like, get in the Bible first, Pastor. So, we're going to get in the Bible and we're going to unpack what John says about love. And then we'll stand back and we'll make some observations about how that might inform the conversation about abortion. So, John uh, begins his discussion like this. He says in chapter 3, verse 11 For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, from the very origin of your Christian life because at the very heart of the teaching of Jesus is the love command. I've taught this to you. I've preached it again and again. We, go, we keep going back to this because you still haven't got it. He says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. And as he goes next, what he's going to do is he's going to unpack and explore this idea of love by setting the essence or the very ethic of love in contrast with its very opposite namely hate. And look at how he puts it. He's going he's gonna to contrast uh, two archetypes, one that embodies the archetype of hate, uh, who commits murder, and then the other who's the archetype of love, who gives his life, namely Cain and Jesus. And notice uh, how he puts it in the text. He puts it like this in verse 12. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So he's asking the question, what does it mean to love? And before he talks about what love is, he gets to the basics of what love isn't. He says, what love is not is it's not hate and it's not taking life. And so he says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So it's interesting, I mean, in some ways, you think, could we set the bar a little higher for love? Then here's what it means for you to be a loving person. Don't hate and murder like Cain, you know? And yet he draws out this example. Why Cain? It's interesting, uh, in 1 John, he only makes one reference in the book to an Old Testament character, only one time in one place it's here, and the character he draws upon is Cain. Why Cain? Well, Cain is something of an archetype. Uh, When you look to the very founding stories in Genesis 1 through 3, it gives us insight into very uh, core aspects of what it means to be human. And so when we look at Cain's story, we learn something about the human story. When When we learn about what Cain did and why he did it, we learn something about what humans do and why we do what we do. And so he's drawn upon Cain for a very specific reason to set it in contrast with this idea of love. And the story of Cain and Abel goes simply like this. Cain and Abel are brothers. Cain is older. He's the firstborn. And as the firstborn, he's the privileged child, which I know in American society, it's a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around that because we know in American culture, it's not the firstborn who's the favored one. It's the youngest child. I'm the youngest child. Can I get a witness out there? Yes. Thank you. But in the ancient world, they had it all wrong and backwards. It was the firstborn who was privileged. And so Cain had the privileged place. No doubt he always got what he wanted. You know, we imagine Cain maybe winning all the sporting events beating his little brother Abel in ping pong being more successful and he takes over the family business his father and mother were farmers or they worked the ground and Cain works the ground and it comes to pass one day that Cain and Abel both make an offering to the Lord but now Cain who's normally first above his brother actually finishes last and his brother's offering is accepted and Cain's offering, the text says, was rejected and Cain didn't like this and the text says his face fell and he became very angry. And we just imagine Cain's resentment over time out of this jealousy and envy because he should be the first, he should be accepted and what's my brother doing and why is he getting that? And, and he's getting bitter and the resentment is growing and over time he arises and he kills his brother Now, think for a moment about somebody who triggers you emotionally, somebody who who gets your blood boiling, somebody who you're angry with, and somebody who you might resent, maybe even at your worst moments you hate. And why is it that you hate them? Why the resentment? Well, sometimes, sometimes it's because they wounded you deeply, because they did you wrong. Maybe they abused you. And sometimes you are angry and you feel hate because of the bad they did to you. But why does Cain hate Abel? It's interesting, it's not because Abel is bad, it's because he's good. You know, the most insidious and dangerous form of hate begins with this kind of resentment. The, murderous, the most murderous acts begin with resentment. You know, Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him. Why? Not because he was bad, but because he was the favorite. And why did Saul hate David? Well, because Saul had slain his thousands, but David had slain his 10,000s. You know, have you ever disliked somebody, not because they were bad, but because they were better than you at something, and they had gotten further along than you? I mean, this is a very common human experience, this experience of envy and jealousy. And I think John pulls up the model of Cain because he wants to put us on notice, be careful. Because what begins with envy and jealousy can then yield to resentment and bitterness and anger, which can then be hardened into hatred, which can ultimately explode into acts that hurt other people. And I think most of us know what this is like. We know what it's like when we've been hurt, we want them to hurt. And maybe we've never killed anybody, but maybe what you've done is you've committed character assassination through gossip. And so he says, be on guard, here's Cain. Here's the archetype of hate. It is jealousy and envy that ends up because you're doing better than me, I wanna put you down for my sake. And he contrasts the story of Cain now with the story of Jesus. Cain took life, but Jesus gives life. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, you know the opposite of love. It's Cain, it's hate, it's resentment, it's murder. But he says, here is the essence of love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Remember back in the 80s, some of you, Tina Turner sang that classic song, What's love got to do? Let's just sing it together as we got to do it. You know, she asked the question, what's love? You know, what what is love but a secondhand emotion? John says, if you want to know the essence of love, here it is. Sacrificial, self-giving love became flesh and was manifest among us in Jesus who gave his life for the healing and reconciliation of the world. The way of love is the way of Jesus. It is bearing pain for the good of the other. It is lowering himself so that others can be exalted. It is becoming poor so that through his poverty and ultimately his death, we might become rich. And John says, if God so loved us that way, then this is the love you ought to learn how to reenact in your relationship, in your lives, in the world. New Testament scholar C.H. Dodd put it like this. He said, love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another, to surrender what is valuable to you so that someone else can be enriched, now of course, the emphasis in our text is on the brothers and sisters. It's within, the, it's within the church family, but this ethic of sacrificial, self-giving, healing love that works and wells the good of another, it stretches out beyond the circle of the church family to our neighbors. And this kind of love actually stretches out beyond neighbors, to strangers, to others. And it stretches out even beyond strangers, to even our enemies. It is love that will save the world, even love for our enemies, Dr. King said. And and John is calling us into this kind of radical ethic of love. He says, if if he laid down his life for us, then we ought, it's our moral and ethical obligation to lay down our lives for others. Now, John doesn't want us to get too lofty and to think in such heroic terms, And so he gets a little bit more practical next. Look at, he says, so let me just tell you what I'm talking about. Let's get to brass tacks. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods, and so he wants us to take inventory. Do you have some goods in the world? Do you have some resources, a home, a car, you know, some goods, some social capital? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need and yet closes your heart against him, He says, how can the love of God abide in you? Little children, let's not love in word and in talk, but let's love in deed and in truth. This is a love that works itself out into action. And so he says, think practically about this. And so for example, you're a student and you have a a good friend group and there's somebody who wanders onto the campus or at youth group who's alone and, and, and it's gonna cost you something to reach out to them. You, you wanna hang out with your friends. You don't wanna feel awkward and uncomfortable. But you, you give up some of that social capital in order to go and reach out to the need of another. Or maybe you have a, a great family and uh, you, know, you, you have rich times at the family dinner table and there's some college students that need a home away from home. And so you sacrifice, you bear, you know, a loss financially because when you invite college students in, they eat a lot of food, right? Come on, do, can I get a witness, Jonathan? I mean, he's eating at my house a lot, what can I say? You know, but, but you welcome them in, you know, or maybe you've got some vacation time. And there's a, a, a vacation Bible school camp or, you know, where there's a kid's camp and we need help. And you're like, I sacrifice some of my vacation time to go serve kids. You're like, but it's going to cost me something. That's the point of love. Or maybe you have a listening ear and there's somebody who's got serious problems and they want to vomit all over somebody. And you take the time to patiently listen to them in love. John says let us not love in word or in talk but in deed or in truth. Or you've got some money in the bank accounts and there are people who are dying for lack of bread, for clean water, for mosquito nets or basic medications and you don't lower your standard of living to share some of your resources to help those in need. He says that is not love. Love is in action, it's in deed. Dr. King put it like this. He said, love is not an emotional bash. It is not empty sentimentalism. It is active outpouring of one's whole being into the being of another. And so John closes off his discussion with this word. He says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. He Says this is our ethical obligation. So John builds out this idea, this ethic of love that stands at the heart of Christianity. It's the very foundation of our ethical reasoning. This is the obligation that should shape our way of life in this world. It's modeled after Jesus, the incarnate love among us. And he says, you need to embody this love in your life in the world. Now, the question we wanna ask now Part two of the sermon. Let's put this question, let's put this ethic of sacrificial self giving love in conversation with the issue of abortion. Now, in in a couple minutes, I'm going to talk about how this ethic of love creates an obligation to love the unborn, and it creates an obligation to love the mothers of the unborn. But before we get there, we need to just ask a very basic question that is really uh, the question that that begs for an answer when it comes to this conversation about abortion. And it's this question. What is the status of the life in the womb? You know, in just a minute, we're going to talk about our obligation to the life in the womb. But we need to ask the question, what is the status of the life in the womb? Now, this is a complicated issue, but it's the issue that has to be dealt with when you talk about abortion. There are all kinds of important issues when it comes to the kind of poverty that often leads to women being in hard places to get abortions. And there, of course, are, are issues of equality among men and women and how men can just oftentimes walk away while a woman is obligated now to carry this life. There's all kinds of issues surrounding it, but before you go to any of those other issues, the issue that is fundamental and as the heart is this one. What is the status of that life in the womb? We could put the question like this. You know, when you think a little bit about pregnancy, I did a little homework this week. Uh, so, image number one is the zygote. This is... Uh, At the moment of conception, there's a single-celled organism. The DNA of the mom and the DNA of the dad have now combined to form a new DNA that is neither mother nor father. And in just this very moment of conception, at the stage of zygote, contains the hair color and the eye color and personality traits and all kinds of things about this human person that's going to be growing. And at four weeks, you reach a new stage after... The zygote uh, embeds in the line of the uterus and becomes an embryo, and and then, it over, and then by the time you get to 14 weeks, you have this little baby growing in the womb. And the question is is, what life are we dealing with here? And what is our obligation toward the life in the womb? That's the question. You know, Kate Kate Greasley, who is an Oxford philosopher and ethicist, uh, she's pro-choice herself, but she puts the issue like this. She says, this is the fundamental issue. What kind of life are we dealing with here? And she says this, it's true that we have certain rights to bodily autonomy, and these are very serious rights and interests, which is oftentimes, you know, my body, my choice gets at this issue of certain rights to bodily autonomy. And she says, of course, there's a huge amount at stake for women in abortion, not just in terms of control of their bodies, but also in terms of control of our reproduction, of when and if a person becomes a progenitor, and sex equality, and all the rest of it. But with all of this taken into account, if abortion really kills a person, listen, if abortion really kills a human person with equal and moral value, and the same fundamental right to life that you or I have, it's going to be very hard to see how even these extremely weighty interests are going to win out. Do you see the argument? She's saying, look, yes, you've got to put these issues in the scales. All of the issues regarding women's rights and autonomy over the body is just, but you have to put in the scale what kind of life are we dealing with here? And if you become... If you depersonalize that life too much and, and you start creating justifications for why you can take that life, you can wind up with arguments that can lead all the way down the road to infanticide. And so Kate Griasley says, this is the issue. What kind of life are we dealing with? Now, of course, we go back to this image again. And the basic answer, and this is what Kate Griesley says, I think this is what most thoughtful people would say when they engage in this issue, what kind of life are we dealing with? This is human life. It's not the zygote of a pig or a cow, this is a human zygote that is going to be growing into a human person. And Kate Griesley says, of course, it's a, hu- it's a human life, but the question is, is when does that life achieve personhood? And then she invites us into some different ethical reasoning. She says, imagine you are uh, running to a hospital, and it's burning down, and you go in there, and there are five uh, embryos that are in the refrigerator, and then there's a little baby. And you're, you're asked the ethical calculus, which are you ethically obligated to save, the embryos or the little baby? And most people would say the little baby, And she uses that to say that there's something different, of course, going on between what's outside of the womb and that zygote. But the question is, is not, is there some difference there? And maybe are there some moral calculations that will change? The fundamental question is, is, from a Christian vantage point, is what kind of life is this? And what kind of obligation do we have to this life? And I think what the Bible declares and what Christians profess is that God is the creator and author of all of life. God is the author of our human lives. And it's not ours to decide to end life. All of life comes into being through the creative agency of the logos, the eternal word. So whenever new life begins to develop in any pregnancy, the creative power of God is at work. And Jesus, the original agent of creation, has already died for the redemption of the incipient life in utero. The famous theologian Karl Barth put it like this, the true light of the world shines already in the darkness of the mother's womb." So whether we accord personhood to an unborn, to a zygote, you know, he or she is a manifestation of new life that has come forth from God. And of course, there may be circumstances when we would deem the termination of such life as morally justifiable, such as in the case of when the mother's life is at risk of death or the child's development is such that their death is all but guaranteed. There may be some ethical reasoning and calculus. There's all kinds of complex issues on the margins. But the bottom line is is that we are God's creatures and we neither create ourselves nor belong to ourselves. And within this worldview abortion is wrong for the same reason that murder or suicide might be wrong, is it, be, it presumptuously assumes authority to dispose of life that does not belong to us. Now, again, there are instances. We need to get into the scenarios and the crazy ones and the difficult ones, but we have to begin at some place and with convictions. But let's move on. <laughs> to a second question, if this is human life that's growing in the womb, then we need to ask, what is our moral obligation to this unborn human life that's in the womb? Our brother or sister of our, of our human brother or sister, that's part of the human community that's growing in this womb. And I would argue that John is teaching us here that our moral obligation to human life even those lives that seem other or different or strange, and especially those lives that are most vulnerable and at risk and weakness and who have no voice, we who have, have an obligation to care for those who are on the margins, and therefore we have an obligation to care for the weak and we have an obligation to care for the unborn. And of course it may be stated, and I think this is an obvious point, that a mother and a father, and we need to emphasize and a father, have an obligation to do loving action towards this life that has been created and that's growing in the womb. And I've watched my wife, you know, bring four children into this world and make some difficult, hard choices along the way and go through some hardship and certainly pain. You know, she went through four unmedicated childbirths she said at one point she wanted, to affect, she wanted to feel and experience the entire effects of the curse. <laughs> She's a tough woman. But any mother and any father, you bear something, you sacrifice, you experience loss and pain and difficulty whenever you love somebody like a child. And of course, the the kind of pain and difficulty it takes to bring a child into the world is matched by pain and difficulties of raising children and hardships and unknowns and complications and difficulties. There's no path of life that is free from pain and difficulty and challenge. And so our moral obligation is to bear hardship for the sake of others. Of course, the irony of Jesus is Jesus says that those who wish to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their lives for my sake and the gospel's sake we will find it. There is strange, wonderful joy found in life marked by sacrificial and glad self-giving love. By widening your hearts out to care for those who are in need, you expand, you experience your own experience of life and the joys of life expanded. And so our moral obligation is to care for the unborn. And where there are situations where a mother, because of difficult, painful, crisis, terrible situations she might be in, is not capable of or is not in a place where she can care for that child, it is the obligation of the church to step in and to care for those children. And so the church among, you know, everyone else, we ought to be the fiercest advocates and agents in adoption and foster care and partnering together with organizations like Elizabeth House that seek to to keep moms with their children so that those children can be supported and cared for. And so our moral obligation is to love these unborn children. But I want to suggest that the love command, this this ethic of love not only obligates us to love the unborn, it also, well, uh, before I go, we... We can't can't leave this point without quoting from Mother Teresa. David, I mean, come on. David said, I'll only come today if you quote Mother Teresa, and here you are. She says this, I will tell you something beautiful. We are fighting abortion by adoption. It's interesting, she recognizes, and she's in the heat of this debate, that you don't fight against really hard places that women are in and children are going through simply by having loud opinions that you assert on social media or that you put in slogans that are put out on tweets or on your lawn. It is through hard and difficult loving action that we care for people. She says, we fight abortion by adoption, by care of the mother and adoption of her baby. We have saved thousands of lives. We have sent word to the clinics, to the hospitals and police stations, please don't destroy the child, we will take the child. And so we have a moral obligation to love the unborn. But thirdly, we have a moral obligation to love the mother of the unborn. You know, I found that in my my conversations with those who are progressives on this issue, they, they often emphasize the needs and the circumstances and the situation of the mother to almost the complete exclusion of the unborn and that human life that's growing in the womb. But I found that among my conservative friends who are conservative on this issue, the conversation is almost the opposite And there is deep concern for the unborn with almost total exclusion of considering the hard place that the mother's in. And the circle of our concern and our love must be wide enough to embrace both the unborn and the mother, and the father for that matter. And sometimes love in those instances to the father means kicking him in the butt and calling him out and calling him to action, serious, there's reason why oftentimes women are in this place. You know, there was a study done among women who were denied the ability to get an abortion. And get this, one week after being denied, 35% no longer wished they would have aborted. So after being denied and being disappointed initially, 35% a week later were glad they didn't abort. Five years later, with four-year-old in tow, 96% were glad they didn't abort which reveals that, among other things, people are not pro-abortion. In the sense that, oh, I'm born today, and one of my dreams in life is to get an abortion. Nobody wants to get an abortion. People find themselves in desperate straits, in crisis moments of their life, and they don't have any other course of action. They're terrified, they don't know what to do. And in moments of desperation, they might go to this solution. the New York Times put out the results of a survey a couple weeks ago revealing the kind of women, kind of the profile of women who get abortions, 75% of those women are near or below the poverty level. Is that because those who are near or below the poverty level are not as moral as those who have wealth and affluence? Or is it because there are circumstances that they are in that prevent them from feeling like this is possible? And those are societal issues that have to be a part of our circle of concern. Care for the unborn and what the situation is, and not just for the unborn and thinking about adoption, but how can those mothers stay with children? Those are other big, massive concerns. And so when we think about our our moral obligation to the mother, we have to think about love of the mother and love of these children. And how do we love mom well so that she can be cared for? You know, I'm primarily at this point talking about the responsibility of the Christian community. You know, and if our reaction to people who are in hard places that make these choices is to shame them or to lock them into guilt, That's just not what the gospel does. The gospel frees us from guilt. And it reveals that we're loved, that there's hope, that there's hope for the future, there's hope for me. And so we need to be people who love all kinds of people who are in all kinds of places that maybe you would be in, maybe some of you have been in. So we have an obligation to love. You know, Richard Hayes, uh, who's a New Testament ethicist, he wrote a brilliant book called The Ethics of the New Testament, but he writes this. He says, The biblical witness suggests that the community of faith should assume responsibility for the care of the needy. Thus, within the church, there should be no justification for abortion on economic grounds or on the ground of the incapacity of the mother to care for the child, the community assumes responsibility and creates whatever structures are necessary to provide for mother and child alike. And maybe it's the rank individualism that characterizes so much of our evangelical churches that actually leads to people to places of desperation where they feel like there is no system of support for me. We've gotta do a better job of intertwining our lives with one another and of caring for others. Someone said to me after the first service, well, can you give me one practical way to do that? Well, our church supports something called the Elizabeth House, and you might prayerfully consider giving money to the Elizabeth House or volunteering at the Elizabeth House. They specifically work with women who are on the streets who get pregnant and who have, they're in a hopeless place, and so they surround them with systems of support. They give them job education and training. They get them into an apartment. And they, they help those moms stay with their babies. And so there's ways in which we can practically get involved. But let me just close with this. You know, ultimately, the truth that stands at the heart of this ethic of love is that the infinite ocean of existence, the transcendent, eternal ocean of love and being that is God, from whom are all things, by whom are all things, has in a gracious act of stunning love become incarnate among us to break the power of sin and death and darkness and shame and guilt over our lives so that we can be freed. And he has opened up the circle of his love to infinite capacity. And he invites us to be recipients of that love. And then to go out in very tangible ways and to incarnate and embody that love in our life in this world.